Welcome to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to IEP Radio. This is episode 13, and this is part three of a four-part remediation series. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about mold remediation and the cleaning process. I want to welcome back my friend and colleague, Dustin Anderson, with Advanced Drying. How you doing, Dustin? Good. How are you, Mike? Doing good. Thank you. And thanks again for just kind of tagging along, being a supportive role here and helping us kind of uh, get through the minutiae of remediation and cleaning. I know it can be complicated, and I know uh, a one glove does not fit all. There's always going to be situations where um, there's deviations. There's um, going to be situations where mold remediation or a cleaning process may not be the best way in a particular scenario. So our goal today is to kind of give you an idea of a general template always knowing that we always recommend having actual boots on the ground, a qualified remediation company who can come out there and help you sift through the minutia of details uh, in case there are deviations. And we may talk about some of those deviations here in a moment. Um, Just to give you a review, uh, part one, we spoke about an overview of the process of remediation and cleaning. So if you want to go back to that, just kind of get some pearls, some basic pearls of knowledge, you can listen to that. Uh, Part two was containment and engineering controls. We kind of dove a little bit deeper into what containments look like. And we hear engineering controls and negative pressures and positive pressures and barriers that are used to basically contain the work and the processes that are occurring inside the containment. Today, we're going to begin and get right into the thick of it with the mold remediation uh, and the cleaning. We're going to act as if the containment's already set up at this point. Um, and we're about to, as a remediation company, walk right into it. One of the things I wanted to talk about real quick before we do that is personal protection equipment, or PPE. Um, we utilize and talk a lot about the IIC, uh, IICRC S520, the third edition. It's a great um, mold remediation standard that offers a great template. There's a lot of good information that we like to use that I know Dustin likes to use. Uh, section 8.3 specifically talks about PPE um, and protecting the workers. Actually, in general, Section 8 is good to read as well. But uh, Dustin, I wanted to ask you, uh, on a typical job that you're setting up, say containment setup, engineering controls are in place, your guys are not not walking out there necessarily in just a pair of shorts and no T-shirt on. Are they suiting up? What does a typical mold remediation job look like in terms of the PPP, the PPE that you guys are using? Uh, generally speaking, you're going to have Tyvek suits, you're going to have respirators, um, you're going to have gloves, um, and that's, that's generally speaking, that, that pretty much covers it. Whether it be a half face, uh, face respirator or full face, uh, you know, depending on what the task is, but that's generally speaking what it looks like. Uh, and, oh, sorry, I was going to ask, you mentioned half mask. Is there ever a reason to have full face or... Yeah, you know, there, there's been situations, you know, if you're, if you're in an attic space or something like that, and there's, there's quite a bit of dust, or if you're in a situation where uh, you're applying a sealant, uh, having a full face, you know, will give you the eye protection and, you know, the face protection. Uh, and then basically, depending on the cartridges you have, if, uh, if you just have a particulate filter or if you actually have the uh, charcoal filter on there as well, uh, you know, you can be using it for multi-purpose. A lot of the um, questions I'll get from uh, clients uh, pertain to how often should uh, people be changing those filters out. It's a great question. Um, what I heard from a, a colleague of mine, and certainly if you read the instructions on average, 
uh, people will use it like a normal workday. So if you have a filter and you're, 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 uh, these are like the cartridges that you're seeing on the respirators that they're changing them usually after a workday. Now you'll find that companies are different about that. Some will try to use them longer. Maybe the employee didn't do a full eight hour day or maybe the, the uh, perceived uh, exposure levels are not as high on a given, uh, say, day two or day three. So maybe they're just using the same cartridge. But some people have the narrative that they can just use the same filter for weeks or months on the same job. And, and typically, they can get overloaded. And uh, that's just a sidebar uh, note for you. Uh, the other thing I want to bring about, and I know we're supposed to be getting right into the cleaning and the remediation, but this is important, is asbestos and lead-based paint. Now, this comes what? up a lot. One quick note uh, yeah. for the people that are listening to this. Um, I think there's somewhere in the standard that says N95 or better. They do sell like a, uh, like a face mask at a Home Depot, and I see a lot of customers get this face mask, and they say, well, it's an MP95, and I say, yeah, but it's not perfectly sealed around your face, and you know, it, it, it really doesn't work how you think it works. And it, for anybody that's potentially going to jump into a situation or do it, you actually really need at least a half face respirator with the actual cartridges that you can change out and not a N95 particulate mask that you can just buy over, you know, at a Home Depot. No, well said. And, and, and just to compliment Dustin on that, even the S520, um, I'm cheating right now. I have to look at the section. It's 8.3.2.1.1 uh, mentions these different upgrades, if you will. Better to err on the side of caution in my book than go with the minimum. It's your life. It's, it's that exposure. I, I know for the people that are listening that may be a, a client or a homeowner, that may not be such a concern for you. But just generally speaking, um, the more the merrier. We shouldn't be walking around thinking N95s are going to be enough protection for you. Um, on that subject, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dustin, thank you. Um, on asbestos and lead-based paint, it comes up. Um, there's no real exact rule of thumb, but I will tell you on asbestos, a lot of times what happens, and Dustin, you know, I, I know using his example, uh, he's, we've had jobs with him before where if the house is older than 1980, uh, he'll require uh, asbestos sampling being collected from the building materials that are suspect to be disturbed. So take that exterior wall, for example, maybe it's going to be made out of drywall or there's plaster. Uh, there's some sort of a finish. Maybe it's a popcorn ceiling. That probably is a better example. Um, and they're not sure whether or not there's um, asbestos containing material. Uh, companies will oftentimes require and should require sampling it. Residential homes are not regulated for asbestos, but that doesn't mean the risk for exposure isn't there. And you might find that a remediation company isn't even insured. Uh, to do that type of work and that that knowing up ahead of time if they're going to be disturbing the type of material that you're working with a company that has the knowledge and experience. Um, Lead-based paint, I know that there's a cutoff of 1978. You have a house that's um, that age or older. Um, you know, it begs the question, um, is there lead-based paint? Um, you can have these items sampled. A lot of environmental professionals uh, can offer that service for you. It's really about communication, uh, communicating with the remediation company up front. Here's the age of my home. Here's the work you know, that you all agree you're going to be disturbing. Do we need to be doing these types of samples? And talking with your remediation company is a great way to avoid any miscommunication, asking them, do we have concerns for asbestos? Because a lot of this information, uh, a qualified remediation company, certainly somebody who uh, follows the S520, um, even Section 8.5 and 8.6, talk about lead, talk about asbestos. Um, finally, real quick, is, is critical barriers. I think we touched on this in part two, but real quick, just a reminder that sometimes a remediation company 
inside of their own containment may put up other additional little pieces of plastic. We call them critical barriers. Could be an air conditioning vent, uh, supply register, return uh, register or vent. Um, it may be an exhaust fan, any penetration or area that is suspected uh, to communicate or have the ability to communicate to other locations. We're, we don't want to cross-contaminate. That's the issue. They're going to be kicking up a bunch of stuff during this remediation that we'll be talking about here very shortly. And you don't want unintended areas to be contaminated uh, from that area. So um, making sure that the inside of the containment, anywhere where there's duct work or pathways that lead to other areas that are outside of the remediation company's scope of work, need to be addressed. And that could even be something like a crawl space. You want to make sure that if they're working in the kitchen and there's a crawl space underneath, are there any measures that need to be taken? Is there an access panel? What is there that can create communication? Because it's a two-way street. You don't want the remediation company to um, cross-contaminate those other areas in the home. You also don't want another area to contaminate the area that they are working in. Uh, so we may dive into that a little bit more detail. Um, Dustin, uh, Kind of getting into one issue, um, we, you know, we start the process with physical removal. I mean, here we are again, going back to the scenario where mold remediation companies here, I'm going to share my screen real quick so that the viewers can kind of follow a narrative. Um, I'll minimize my screen here. So if you're watching this right now, what you're seeing is a couple of photos and there's a photo on the upper right here that kind of shows this mold. Um, this is mold uh, from obviously some sort of a moisture issue that occurred but a side note I want to make is that we're not really talking about topical mold that occurs from like, say, uh, condensation that may occur in shower, uh, on tile, things that are topical. If mold is growing on your tile or your grout or maybe even on the ceiling because you typically have uh, moisture that's condensing there, that doesn't necessarily mean you have mold that's growing through the drywall or that you have a big mold problem behind that tile wall, the drywall, that tile, the grout, that sort of thing. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because um, in those situations, you really wanna work with probably an indoor environmental professional unless you trust the remediation company because what we're afraid of is that somebody may have a little bit of mold growing on a grout line in a shower because you shower in it and there's a lot of moisture and you don't dry out that shower and a company may come out who's say less than ethical and they may say we want to we need to rip out this entire shower and that may not be the case so what we're really focusing on is on more traditional forms of moisture intrusion whether it's a roof leak a plumbing leak a heavy saturation maybe it's a moisture migration through a basement wall um, something that's more traditional this is all the more reason to have an IEP indoor environmental professional or a mediation company on site with you to go over the areas that are not so obvious, like that 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 mold on the tile, as an example, in your shower. Dustin, to help me start this off, um, when you go inside of a containment, your guys are wearing PPE. What is the first thing they're doing if they know they need to remediate, say, a section of drywall? You're going to basically remove the suspect areas, and you're going to chase it depending on what you find. How do you draw your, your, your lines on the wall? Do you guys use chalk lines? How do you keep the lines straight? This picture here on the upper right looks like somebody used a hammer and their hands to rip it out, but that's not normally what you guys do. Yeah, you know, actually that, that looks really good there. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, so there is, uh, you know, when you've been doing this long enough, you kind of have an idea of what you're gonna shoot for. And so uh, when you go out there, you just kind of have in mind, uh, you know, if you're gonna cut a, a one foot cut or a two foot cut up the wall in this case, 
it looks like it's about four feet up the wall because where that uh, switchblade is on the wall. But uh, you know, you, you can certainly you can certainly uh, start small and then go bigger as needed. Uh, but part of that is you know measuring up the wall, snapping the chalk line. Uh, part of this too is uh, trying to be mindful of the customer because you know they're obviously going to have to pay to put things back. And you know if you rip out 30 feet of uh, drywall when you only have to deal with or address two square feet of mold, you're really not doing them a service unless you really suspect that it could be or potentially in other parts of the room and you're just trying to rule out other options or rule out other areas that could be, you know, potential issues. Well, the other thing I want to give compliment to you on, I know that you do this in the field is local exhaust ventilation. And the idea behind this is uh, I happen to know that uh, Dustin has a couple of outdoor mounted vacuums, HEPA vacuums that he runs a long hose into and during the cutting uh, process in, in the parts of the remediation where you're going to kick up a lot of debris and contaminants, he'll try to have that inlet within a few inches of the work being done. Because again, if you look at that photo, if you can tell from what's on the ground, there's a lot of debris, there's a lot of, um, of particulate that makes it more challenging down the road to environmentally clean uh, the containment area. It's an uphill battle, quite frankly, where we find most remediation companies fail is not because they can't physically remove uh, moldy drywall, as an example, it's uh, the the cleaning, uh, the lack of the lack of cleaning to the surfaces. So, we'll add that when they're doing the chalk line and they're they're cutting open that wall carefully, trying to be considerate of of you know where does the mold go. Um, there's not really a set that I'm aware of a set standard of saying how many inches beyond. You'll hear different remediation companies say, to, you know, we go 18 to 24 inches beyond any evidence of water staining, damage, or mold growth. But the point is, is that when you're doing that physical removal, if it's possible, it's nice to have the remediation company have uh, a vacuum that's outdoor mounted and run a hose inside. And then having that inlet of the nozzle within a couple inches to where it can suck any sort of larger debris chunks, even lighter, uh, smaller pieces directly outside. Um, the other issue is immediately bagging. Um, there's a lot of uh, to don'ts here in this po uh, picture versus to do's. Um, uh, Dustin, um, when you guys are out there and you're physically removing, let's say in this photo, there's damaged drywall, um, are you guys putting it in bags right away or do you kind of leave a, a pile of mess right here and then worry about it later? Well, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of clean as you go. Uh, I think that uh, if you're the one doing the work, there are certain steps that you can take to make your life easier. I mean, um, they, to the normal person just, you know, uh, looking at this in a picture, you're probably looking at a picture and you, you probably just go, that looks like a mess. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, depending on the flooring, is that stained concrete or is that like a laminate type flooring? And now they, you know, they, you have drywall with nails or screws in the drywall and all it takes is one of your guys stepping on the drywall and, uh, you know, not get a screw through your foot or and, and put in the flooring. So, when you have a situation like that, you, you know, you can be causing an issue just for your own personal safety to, you know, potentially causing more damage to something that doesn't need to happen. So um, in a situation like that, it, it would take you literally 30 seconds to basically get some six mil plastic and, and lay down on the floor uh, right in front of the work area. And then that way, um, when you when you do do the demo, you can bag the stuff up, any of the small particles 
Uh, basically, you can roll them up and do kind of a burrito inside of a plastic that you lay on the floor to protect the floor. So uh, there, there's a couple of things that I would do a little bit differently. Um, it's just one's personal preference and how much effort do you want to put into it? Do you want to yeah, put it's a like pay me now or pay me later, right? Well, you know, I mean, it, it, I can give you this example, which probably everybody's done, right? Is, you know, if you go to paint a room, uh, do you take the time to lay down plastic on the floor to protect the carpet or the flooring? And do you, you know, tape off the edges and things like that? So when you, you, you just don't go in there and just start, you know, painting everything and then come back and trying to clean it up later. I mean, you'll make life really, really difficult on yourself. You could think of a mold job the same way. Uh, the more surgical you are about it, uh, going through the job, uh, the easier it's going to be on the back end to, to, I mean, it's not easy to clean as it is, but it'll be less potential that you have to worry about. Um, so, uh, you know, clean as you go and just, you know, bag things as you're pulling it off the wall. And yeah, it, it's a good practice if, if you can get everybody to follow along. Right, right. And that and that's where this is this this video cast here is, is helpful for the audience who is the homeowner or the person paying for the remediation who may not understand industry standard and norms is these are the, the tricks and the tips that we've learned over the years that help you on the down the road. And when I say down the road, I mean, when we get into the environmental cleaning, the stuff that is harder to appreciate because they're not physically removing mold that maybe like in this photo, you can appreciate them physically removing um, it's cleaning all the stuff that you can't see, the stuff that's there right now in that photo, but you just visually can't see it. Um, sometimes we deal with other uh, issues. Um, uh, you get to the point now where you've physically removed uh, the, the molding materials like drywall. How do you handle, say, lumber? In that photo, there's undoubtedly uh, some studs there that have a visible microbial growth on that. How do you typically address that? Do you just spray to kill stuff on there, or are you physically removing so you're, uh, if you look at the bottom picture there, you, you, you obviously have a technician that's wiping the studs. Um, you, you always want to discuss with the uh, homeowner uh, the products that you're using and just make sure it's in a, a homeowner approved agent, whatever that agent is. Um, and then basically uh, with the studs themselves, you'd be sanding, uh, trying to get as much as you potentially can off of that stud until it lightens up. Uh, you can treat it and you can wipe the studs down like this gentleman is doing here in the photo with the homeowner approved surficant or antimicrobial or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then from that point, uh, you can you can seal it up. And uh, <clears throat> that's generally speaking, that's kind of what you do before you start the cleaning process. Right. And some people have asked, well, gosh, if there's there's mold or, you know, we'll just pick on mold right now. But um mold on my studs that mean I have to replace the studs. A lot of these studs have a, are serving a structural purpose. So the answer is unless they're structurally compromised, which typically they wouldn't be, but that has happened. You can have a long-term ongoing issue on a, on, on a wall that you never knew about and you lo and behold, you open it up and there's dry rot or maybe there's termite damage or you name it. Unless there's structural damage, the remediation company is going to do just what Dustin said. They're going to try and sand down to physically remove um, sometimes they'll use um, an anemic, um, I should say, a disinfectant or a surfactant for the purposes of either breaking down or physically lifting up off the surface uh, the stubborn mold spores, structures, fragments, that sort of thing that may still exist on the studs. Um, but the, the key takeaway here is that, as you've heard Dustin and I say, is it's not about killing; it's 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 physically removing. Here, we're not we're not trying to to kill because, uh, especially for those who suffer from chronic illness or low dose environmental concerns, inflammatory response to mold doesn't stop 
uh, just because you've killed it. In fact, if we want, unless you want to go back to the 1960s and 70s where we talked more about mold from the standpoint of disease and the ability for it to grow in your lungs like aspergillosis or things like that, gone are the days of just you know bleaching it to kill it. It's about physical removal. Um, in this process now, we've talked about, you know, so you have the containment, it's under, it's under its proper engineering controls. You have a company that's coming out who's defining, okay, we're gonna remove a section of drywall. They open it up, maybe they have to go a little bit further. Typically these scenarios, by the way, are already kind of discussed, these what ifs with you before you've committed to the project. So you kind of have an idea of what to expect, um, you being the homeowner. Um, eventually get to the part of cleaning the studs down, which Dustin did a great job talking about. There's no real secret here. Uh, there's no there's no miracle product that we recommend. I think elbow grease, quite honestly, is the biggest secret right there. Eventually, you get to the part of cleaning. Now, he's talked about cleaning the studs, things like that. That's important. But now we're going to kind of change gears into the second half of this, which is um, cleaning the surfaces in the containment area. Um, if you were to go to, say, the next photo here, you have a large containment area. And... Unfortunately, even though you did do the best you can to localize your work, maybe they, um, Dustin, as an example, during the cutting, used a vacuum hose to suck a lot of the particles um, to prevent them from kind of uh, escaping throughout the containment area and to other areas of the containment. Or maybe they brought the inlet side of a negative air machine that's exhausting the outside in the work area. They're not going to get everything. That's the point. There's still going to be a lot of debris that's, uh, floating around and settled out on surfaces, including the plastic. Um, and so these areas need to be cleaned. So I want to change gears, that being said, to the cleaning. And, and to start, wherever you're at in the process, the, the remediation company most likely had set your house or this containment under either a negative air or a positive air pressure, depending on the scenario. And we talked a lot about that in part two, uh, the previous uh, video cast. Typically, what a remediation company will do uh, at this point is they will HEPA vacuum or they'll use an, um, an, an OPA vacuum. Again, if they can with the vacuum canister outside, they'll vacuum up the horizontal and vertical surfaces in the containment. And the primary goal there is to remove the big stuff. All right. These are the coarse materials that have settled out. These are items that you're not going to have a really effective job removing with a terry cloth or a swiffer cloth that sort of thing so they're removing the bulk materials and again it's that whole pay me now pay me later if you have a remediation company who can install like in this photo right now on the upper photo there's a hepa vacuum here well if that vacuum was outside then you and i wouldn't have to worry so much about the small fragments or particles that are escaping either through around the filter that this HEPA vacuum undoubtedly has. HEPA vacuums are not perfect. There's particles that are escaping through them. And when you're somebody who has a chronic illness, some of these really, really small particles can cause inflammatory reactions. So while they may be helpful in removing the total count, consider also that the remediation company you're working with, even though they're supposed to clean out their equipment before every job, how do you know that this is not a remediation company that used one of their vacuums from 10, 20, 30 other jobs prior to yours and they never cleaned it out? So you have a real nasty vacuum cleaner with a nasty canister in it. And they, they think this company, because there's a HEPA filter on it, that they don't have to worry about cleaning it out. They could be spewing mold fragments, let's call it, into your containment and cause more of a problem than you had to begin with. So when it's possible, 
try to have a vacuum canister outside. There will be applications when you can't do that. Let's say it's too far to the containment. They don't have a hose that's long enough. Then what you start looking at are other things like, well, making sure that they do have a clean vacuum. They are using fresh new filters um, and, and, and that they're communicating all this stuff with you up front so you don't find out after the fact in case they're not. Following the HEPA vacuuming um, usually is damp wiping. And a lot of people, I get this question a lot from the clients I work with is, well, how do you start? And so the general rules of thumb with damp wiping, which we'll explain in a little bit what damp means, um, you usually go from cleaner areas of the containment to dirtier areas. So if you're in a containment area, let's say, for example, we'll go to the previous photo, where clearly this upper picture wall, there's the mold, you'd work from the area farthest from it and work towards it. The second rule of thumb is you work top to bottom, just like you're washing a car. You, you clean the, the surfaces that are up high, and then you work your way down low. Another rule of thumb that some companies will use, um, they may start from the area of makeup air. So some containments, um, uh, like this picture here, it doesn't really have one, but imagine if it was exhausting to the outside, there was a, a scrubber, uh, an air filtration device rather that's um, routed outside like this duct is. Imagine if there was a filter right here where I'm drawing on the square of the containment, that would be a makeup air location. Sometimes people will clean from the makeup air and work their way towards the negative air machine. So the whole point is you're usually going generally from cleaner to dirty or generally from top to bottom. The S520 uh, section 12.2.6 does discuss uh, wiping down. Um, they don't really specify damp wiping and what that means. Um, so to talk about damp wiping real quick, let me just be clear. Every company is different. You have companies that like to use uh, a multitude of product, uh, products that can, you can easily find out what they are online. But the problem I find, and Dustin and I have been through the weeds on this uh, with different clients, is their level of susceptibility varies. You'll have a company that goes out there and use, uses a quote-unquote green uh, product uh, in there, and you know it's, it's meant to be for chemically sensitive people, and they have a horrible reaction to or you'll have a product that's known to be very effective at reme remediating because it's got a, maybe it's got a very high surfactant to it, but it leaves a residue or a film on the surface, and that can harbor uh, contamination that doesn't ultimately get removed. It stays there. In the end, what we have found that works the most for the most sensitive people as it relates to the damp wiping step that usually occurs after the HEPA vacuuming and the containment is just good old-fashioned household dish soap, Dawn, um, whatever, whatever product you like to use to use, mix that with water. But then the question I get was, well, how much? Because if you're like me growing up, I always thought as a kid that, you know, if a little is good, more must be better. And that's not always the case because we're trying to avoid leaving a film on this surface. And a colleague of mine, his name is John Banty, works out of Northern California, had come up, you know, with a, 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 a ratio, if you will, that seems to work pretty well. And that is that for every five drops of your dish soap, add that to a quart of water. We're, we're not adding a lot. It's just enough to have the most thinnest film of soap, which acts as a surfactant to wipe down. My question to you, Dustin, is you've used a whole multitude of, of surfactants to damp wipe with in containments over the years. What is your personal experience of what you find works the best for cleaning the surfaces? You know, that's, well. Put you there, on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I'm not gonna put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. 
You don't uh, have to mention any names, but what? Let's go this way: dish soap and so, water. So when it comes, well, let's let's go back. So um, any remedial company that you're going to work with, they're going to have their favorite product that they like to use. What they kind of you know, what's in their, their tool bag uh, that they feel is a good product that's going to be appropriate to get the job done. It's something that they've used time and time again. Otherwise, uh, they wouldn't be comfortable with it and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't suggest using it. Um, I do have a couple of go-to products um, for the sake of just trying to uh, not pigeonhole me to any one thing. I've had customers that, uh, you know, have wanted to use, uh, you know, uh, plant-based um uh, antimicrobials, uh, you know, agents to uh, disinfectants uh, to use in something that has absolutely no smell or hydrogen peroxide or vinegar or borax soap or Dawn or seven generations uh, uh, dish soap. Um, and generally speaking, the people that have really, really high chemical sensitivities, I just say to them, what do you use in your house for your cleaning? And I have, you know, they'll, they'll you know, just provide me with, you know, a bottle of your dish soap. And you know, it's, it's a couple bucks. It's something that they're using. If they're providing it to me, obviously they have no problem with me using their house. Um, so it's kind of a no brainer. I don't have to uh, worry about using a product that's going to be quote unquote offensive to them. And so uh, I generally like to, to do it that way. If I'm dealing with somebody super sensitive, why don't you just provide me with a bottle of what you would like me to use and tell me how much it is. I'll pay you for it. Right. Uh, and, and that, that way it's uh uh, you know, in the, the, the part here that's, that's hard to grasp for some is, you know, the, the level of expectation that's set forth to the remedial company. Um, you know, if you, if you say, Hey, listen, um, you know, I want you to do the best job in the world and I want you to provide me with this result, but, uh, the only thing that you can use in their containment is water or, you know, you're, you're asking me to do a job and then tie my hands behind my back and still see how I can perform. Um, you know, it, it's been a challenge. It really has been a challenge. Uh, I know we haven't talked about everything in the cleaning process yet, but uh, um, just with the, you know, the, the general products, uh, the different phases of it, I found that, you know, using uh, a multitude of different things at different times will drastically increase our results. And uh, uh, give me give me some give me some examples. I mean, I don't. All I was going to end up going to was talking about the fact that I think that where the S five twenty doesn't go into detail is doing multiple rounds of cleaning. You and I both know that you don't just do one round of HEPA vacuuming, one round of damp wiping, and then like wipe your hands clean and leave. That's where I was going with this conversation. So if you have some some pearls of wisdom, please. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you've already discussed getting in there and HEPA vacuuming the surfaces and doing that. Um, I think that you can't HEPA vac enough, uh, especially if you have a system where you're running a hose inside of your containment, obviously you'd wipe the hose as you're bringing in your containment or through the house. Uh, you know, but uh, you're, you're, you're basically exhausting air from that outside outdoors through filters. It's, it's, you don't have to worry about uh, re, you know, uh, possible uh, cross-contamination from your equipment being inside your containment. Uh, you do a great job with the HEPA vac, detailed as you possibly can, head to toe, every surface. And then at that point, uh, you wet wipe. And whether it be, uh, let's just use seven generations di uh, dish soap, because I just did one of these for a customer not too long ago. And um, you know, get a five-gallon bucket, 
you basically, you know, put a couple of gallons of water in there, uh, a, a small amount of soap. It doesn't require a lot. Uh, and then basically I take brand new terry cloths and you drop them in the bucket. And so they're saturated. You mix everything up really good. When you pull a rag out to do your wipe, you just wring the rag out and then you wipe your surface, fold the rag, wipe some more, fold the rag, wipe some more, fold the rag. And then when you're done with that rag, you throw it away. You don't try to reuse it. You reach into the bucket, you grab a new rag, you wring out the excess, and then you just do that all the way through the containment. Um, it seems maybe a little bit excessive that I'm going to be throwing away all these rags, but uh, that's what it takes to, to, you know, basically perform at the levels in which most are asking for. Well, uh, yeah, and, and in your defense, it's not like you're trying to be wasteful. It's learning the hard way from previous jobs where maybe there was a time, you know, going back many years where you would reuse the WAG because the th concept was more like cleaning a car where you all just put it in the same water real quick and wring it out. And it, it's, it's about we keep on dialing it in on the efficacy and what we're missing, what we're getting. And uh, cross-contamination is a qualitatively important thing, meaning we know it can happen quantifiably, meaning the numbers, how bad, how much. It's just, it's too, it varies too much from, from situation to situation. And it's not the, the, worth the risk because one bad fail often results in a, when I say a fail, I'm thinking about, you know, testing of the containment, you're done with your work, not to jump uh, too far ahead. Um, and you have to go back and re-clean, retest. Well, that's worth a thousand terry cloths. You know what I mean? So, well, it, it, so that, that, that's, you know, it, it might seem excessive or they're going to waste, but, you know, paying for retesting is a heck of a lot more expensive than using all brand new terry cloths when you're doing the cleaning process, right? right. Uh, and so, you know, this has all been uh, accumulation of experience in me doing this. You know, I, 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 I try to avoid and I try to give my guys to never, ever, ever use a HEPAVAC like that inside of the containment now because I've built machines that do it right from our truck and can suck the biggest debris through a two-inch hose. Um, it's to make their life easier, but yet to make it foolproof because, you know, let's face it. Um, people get complacent, people get lazy and, um, you know, it, keeping the equipment perfectly clean and making sure that they have brand new filters in there every time or brand new bags or what have you wiping down every square inch. And that way you're not, you know, bringing the last house that you worked on into the new house that you're worked on or that you're working on. And so, you know, uh, everything that you can do to minimize that. And, uh, that kind of goes back to the Terry class, right? It used to be that, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you buy all these terry cloths, you use them to wipe them down, you throw them in a, a, you know, a bag and then you take them back to the shop and a lot of people will actually wash them and they'll douse them in bleach and they'll, you know, to make them look nice and dry them and then throw them in there and then reuse the towels. Well, for me, um, what if they're not good enough? And what if it's the same thing as bringing that bad HEPA vac right into my containment? Right. Uh, is it, is it worth the risk? And, uh, when you're, you know, uh, time is money and, and uh, health is, you know, can equate to both of those. So I say, uh, you know, go, you know, do, do everything you can to maximize your potential and to get the best result possible. So you're wiping down, no, you bring up good points. You, you're wiping down the services. Um, I, I, I obviously like the idea of just a common household dish soap because it gets, it also helps us understand your level of sensitivity as the homeowner and elbow grease. I mean, you're getting every square inch. Um, one of the things that the S520 doesn't really elaborate on is multiple rounds, and it kind of de depends on the uh, remediation company. I'll just, I'll just add a few notes here. Um, you may find that uh, from the start of the first damp wipe, 
to the last wiping of the sur of, of the, the surfaces in the containment, they may have done it three or four times. Um, the one note I want to make is that somewhere between the second to last clean and the last clean that you're doing, which we'll get to in a moment, you're usually discontinuing the use, or at least we are, of negative air pressure or positive air pressure because we're trying to minimize cross-contamination concerns from areas outside the containment. So let me let me simplify that. At in the in the beginning, we were more worried about containing the work because we know we're about to kick up a bunch of, um, we'll just pick on mold again, fungal fragments, spores, structures, and we know that the concentration is going to be orders of magnitude higher, despite best efforts usually, uh, during the demo process, that the idea of keeping the containment under, say, a negative air pressure or other scenarios that we talked about in, in, in part two, the previous video cast, um, that 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 serves a value but then eventually the remediation company does such a great job cleaning they've done a hepa vacuum they've done probably at this point two damp wipes of the containment the containment's starting to look pretty clean and we'll talk a little bit more about scrubbers here um air filtration devices and things like that i'm just going to get to the surface cleaning uh first but it, uh so now they're getting to a very clean environment perceivably and now they're afraid that this negative air, let's say it's under negative air. So this is the example where there is a machine um, blowing air outside of the containment like this picture shows. And we're afraid it may be sucking air from areas that are outside of the containment. This is, you're not having the remediation company in most situations gut the entire house. Usually it's just an area or two. This, this is common. And so what they'll do is they'll switch that um, negative air pressure or positive air pressure, they'll just switch it off. So now it's more under a, new, a neutral pressure. And typically when that happens, um, what I know, Dustin, correct me if I'm wrong, but your actual final clean doesn't use any chemicals um, or, or product at all. It just uses dry, unscented Swiffer cloths, correct? Correct. Okay, just wanna make sure that hasn't changed. Um, so, um, the reason we do that is when you switch from a, a damp to dry is now we're trying to pick up the stuff that is so microscopically small that these uh, Swiffer cloths, which are relatively cheap, um, uh, that you can buy at most any store, um, has an electrostatic property that picks up and when you wipe them, it kind of activates that and it can pick up even the smallest of particles. And again, learning the hard way over the years with uh, a lot of companies, mainly with Dustin, to be honest with you, uh, we've learned that this technique has been the most successful as it results into any clearance testing done afterwards, which we'll talk about more on part four. So takeaway here, uh, just a quick, quick overview. When we're talking about final cleaning, typically it is a really good uh, detailed clean with a HEPA vacuum. We like the canister to be outside if possible to minimize any cross-contamination concerns. We understand that we're going to damp wipe, typically dish uh, soap and water are going to be our friends, um, especially the ones that the occupants are using. Um, for a couple bucks, you can have, you know, the occupants supply the remediation companies that you're not spending $100 a gallon on some special project with a magical, you know, suspiciously magical results that they claim to have, that you're wiping down those containment surfaces uh, at least two times, and that you're switching the any engineering controls, whether it's negative air pressure, positive air pressure, you're kind of getting rid of that so that you can prepare it for the final clean, uh, which is usually a dry wipe. Um, I want to, I want to, while that's going on, okay, so uh, a lot of companies will traditionally use an air filtration device, and this is a machine that can vary in capacity, uh, smaller units may run 
two, 300 cubic feet per minute. Uh, some of the larger units are 2,000 uh, cubic feet per minute. And they'll be running one of these machines, at least one, typically inside your containment, and it's scrubbing. It's, doing, it's just scrubbing the air. Um, if you believe in the methodology of, uh, of, of, of the air filtration devices scrubbing the air uh, and doing their job, the only thing I want to make you aware of, and again, um, the S520 does a good job with this, but is replacement of the primary or secondary filters. Um, it it kind of depends on the manufacturer's specifications of, on how often they want you to change some of these filters. This is going to be a machine that's operating in a, a containment where there's been a bunch of work happening. Like, for example, in that photo that we shared uh, where there's visible mold growth, you don't see it here, but imagine if there was a machine right there running. Um, you need to follow the manufacturer um, recommendations for replacement of those filters. Also, section 12.2.6, uh, actually, I, I apologize, section 12.1.4 mentions a little bit more about what does that look like? How often are we changing it? How are we changing it? Are we leaving the machines running while we're changing the uh, filters to minimize any um, disturbance of uh, mold particulates that may be on the filter? Things like that. Um, there is also fogging. So keep in mind that for the last 10 or 15 minutes, we were talking about wiping down surfaces, but what about the air? The air needs to be scrubbed too. And the traditional model that you'll see mentioned and utilized in a vast majority of remediation projects are air filtration devices. There's also something about fogging. And this particular video cast is not going to go into the weeds with the pros and the cons, but I'll tell you this much. I am a fan of fogging when it's being used to drop or remove particles from the air. Uh, basically think of the fogging or actually misting as a dust suppression system used for cleanup purposes. So if you go online, you may see people using words like fogging and dry fogging. And we've already talked a little bit on other podcasts about dry fogging. But if the purpose of the misting agent to, to aerosolize in the air is to drop particles out so that you can then wipe the surfaces, I'm a big fan of it. If it's to kill something, if it's to fog to kill, uh, we're not addressing the dead stuff that they did kill. We need to physically remove that. And even the S520 um, does mention the use of misting, and uh, you, you can read it for yourself, but the bottom line is that section 12.1.7 talks about how they like it for dust suppression and cleanup purposes, but they don't recommend it for killing purposes. And so just a little bit to do about the HEPA um, uh, air scrubbers, the air filtration devices that are running in the containment while you're also wiping down the surfaces. Going back on track to where we're at in our process, uh, after the final clean, um, this is the part where typically the company, the remediation company is just about done now. And what they will typically do is a process called a post-remediation evaluation. A post-remediation evaluation is where the remediation company themselves comes in to take a look at their work. Maybe it's the supervisor that's supervising the work being done. Maybe it's the boss and the owner. Um, Dustin, walk me through uh, when a job is done. Um, you, you know, let's say you're going to do some clearance testing. Let's say you know that I'm going to come out and clearance test it. What are you guys doing to check the work to make sure that it's as ready as it's going to be? Or what are the things that you're looking at? 
Uh, just making sure that all the steps were gone through. And uh, at this point, uh, we, we did go over the steps or some of them. Uh, and um, there is kind of a, a method to our madness and, and kind of how we do and how we follow things and uh, bringing fogging into the equation. I am a big fan of it. And the way that I like to use it is uh, we talked about HEPAVAC and we talked about wiping. And when we wipe and we do a first clean, the general th thumb that I have with the guys is that first wipe or that first clean, we're going to continue wiping everything until the rags look clean. That point, ah, that's your yeah. white glove kind of test, if you will. That's, that's the first clean. You want to get it to where the containment and, and, and your rags are, are your, you, they look clean. When you wipe the wall, you, you look at it and it looks clean. That's your, that's your very first wipe, your wet wipe. And then once you get to that point, uh, then what, generally speaking, what we'll do is, um, uh, and, and this might sound a little bit unconventional, but I'll throw fogging in the middle of it. And the reason why I do that is, is right, well, not, not in the middle of that, but right after we do a wet wipe, I like to do two wet wipes. Um, and the, the second wet wipe that I like to do is I like to fog the containment and I fog it pretty heavy and it's purposeful and intentful in the fact that one, uh, the whole idea is to try to take anything that's floating around in the air, knock it down to the ground. And then once you fog, once you fog this containment, you get out of there, you wait 15, 20 minutes, you go in there. The first thing that we do when we jump back into containment is wipe the floor in hopes that whatever is in the air, suspended in the air, got hit with water vapor, became heavy, and has now hit the floor. And if we can go in there and capture that really fast uh, before it has an opportunity to basically dry up and then kind be of re aerosolized. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, so if you can, if you can capture that moment and take it, take the opportunity to do that, it's going to drastically improve your situation. Now there's still going to be vapor, uh, you know, on, on the walls. So at that point you go in, you wipe the walls down again. Um, just because, you know, you, things can settle out or they get wet. Uh, and then let's just say there's air currents because of the, air filtration devices that you have in, inside the containment, let's say air is blowing up against the wall. Well, you know, now there could be something on the wall in that particular instance. So you, you basically, you start with the floors and then in the second wipe, I actually start with the floors and then I work my way up to the ceiling in hopes that I'm capturing everything that's hit the ground or the walls and then working up to the less likely place that it would end up on, which well, would be and your argument is a different methodology. You're you're using a fogging to drop particles out of the air. You understand right. that majority of those particles are going to land on the ground, so you're just trying to capture it first. Um, and Before then, you work your way up, yeah. yeah, right. Well, and which is different from what we said earlier, but we also weren't talking about a misting product. We were talking about just general traditional cleaning, uh, top to bottom towards the dirtier area. So that's fine. Right. And the, uh, the other part of this too is, you know, you, once you get through that second wipe, then you talked about dry wipes, the Swiffers are really, really great. Uh, the one thing that you really try to pay attention to is the plastic because the plastic will, uh, you know, the moment that you wipe it, now it becomes charged and it's going to be, it's going to attract dust to that plastic the first time that you wipe that thing. And, it, and so you have to keep going over that plastic and over the plastic. And the only analogy that I can give I'm sure everyone's seen this is where somebody takes the balloon and they rub it on the kid's head and now the hair sticks to the balloon as they hold it over their head. The plastic's doing the same thing. It's just attracting all these small particles that you can't really see. So hitting, that, hitting the plastic over and over and over again with a dry wipe 
will serve you I, very well. I, and I got to I got to interrupt there just because I agree with you. I can't tell you how many companies Dustin and I ran into where the technicians were under the impression that they didn't need to clean the plastic because they knew the plastic was a temporary wall. And so they figured they could just take it down. And the logic doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, I'm not arguing that the walls, the plastic wall is temporary. I'm arguing that they don't know that all those particles are just going to stand strong and attached. The bond between the particle uh, and the plastic may not be strong enough that when they're tearing the things down and rolling up the plastic and otherwise getting out of the home that they don't aerosolize or dislodge those and they and they uh, then land in the environment. And so, yes, wiping down every surface inclusive of the plastic is critical and something I know Dustin has done for a long time. So good on you. The other thing, too, that um, I, I know Dustin knows this part already, but I'll mention it to the audience, is some, some companies, when they're doing their post-remediation evaluation, um, obviously the visual. So he's talking about, how does my how do my cloth look? Does it look white? Some people will come in with a, literally a black glove, and they'll also white because dust can come in different colors. And so this whole white glove, black glove test to kind of visually look um, is a possibility. Some companies will use ATP meters um, which is basically a device that looks for anything with a living cell or somatic cell and are sampling these surfaces because the idea is that your numbers should be pretty low in a containment you've environmentally cleaned. So it's kind of like a, almost like a pre-test, if you will, for the main one. Um, moisture meters, um, odors, is there anything that's off inside of the containment that would halt any sort of post-remediation testing? Um, and then finally, assuming that the remediation company is done with that, and they've, uh, they're basically saying that we're ready for clearance testing as an example, there's the exiting of the containment. Now, this is not meant, be, meant to be some big for, formal discussion, but again, the S520, giving a lot of credit to them, there's other standards out there that do good work as well, but the S520 has a section 12.2.10 uh, that talks about proper exiting. And we can't go over every scenario here, but here's the general takeaway. Theoretically, when you've gotten down through this environmental clean, everything was being cleaned. I mean, even to the point where the machine, any sort of air filtration device, or if there was a negative air machine in there, uh, the plastic, the negative air, the tubing, if it's still there, this tube right here, um, is being wiped down. Um, certainly being wiped down before anything is being taken out. So if the remediation company has a tool bag and they have some tools in there, they're wiping down those or they're double bagging them to kind of contain them and before they bring them out of the containment area and then they're wiping down the bag uh, before they, they, they leave. They're trying to leave a, the minimal, the most smallest footprint in the containment as possible because they're going to be judged if they have any clearance testing uh, following them on the efficacy of their work. At the same time, they're trying to minimize anything that they may bring in from the containment area to the area outside. We talked earlier uh, in the previous video cast about if you can ideally have direct access from the outside to the inside of your containment. This is one of, one of those reasons why it's beneficial to have that is these guys can or girls can walk right in and outside as they please. And we don't have to worry as much about cross-contamination to areas outside of the containment. So in plain English here, take a look at this containment area here on the upper right. You have a containment area, but there's an area outside the containment and it's still in the living room. And you don't, we don't want them to cross-contaminate that. So in the situations where a remediation company may be able to set up a containment and have either direct access to the outsides or may, outside, or maybe they can add a corridor. Uh, maybe it's like, like think of a little plastic hallway 
that's you know six feet, ten feet long that gives them direct access to a door. These are things that Dustin does, and I've seen him do many times to minimize any concern, right, for cross contamination uh, into the uh, other areas of the home. A lot of information. Go ahead, Dustin. Yeah, please. That, that you know, donning and doffing your PPE going inside and out and in and outside the containment very important. Right. One thing to keep in mind too is you know. Uh, just like your front door, every time you open your front door and you walk in and you walk out, taking off PPE right as you exit the containment, put in right as you enter, it's it's not perfect. And, and you know, looking at that that first picture there, um, uh, the the flooring, I'm going to go ahead and guess that there is potentially carpet in that room or something like that because I can see the raw concrete. Um, you know, right outside the containment, I think one of the the purposeful things that you can do. Uh, is you're, you're going to want to HEPAVAC uh, that area outside the containment as well and maybe do, you know, a, a quick wipe down out there as well just to make sure that, you know, if you do, uh, you know, because nothing is perfect, if, if you do uh, happen to have a little bit of a bypass or just from internexing, even though you're donning and doffing correctly, um, that, that goes, that it's kind of the icing on the cake. It's set extra stuff that you can do to ensure that, um, you know, even if that happens, what are we doing to combat it? Right. So if I'm understanding you correctly, and it, the, what Dustin is getting at is you're, we're doing everything we can, best practices, all that stuff, industry standard to minimize cross-contamination, to maximize the uh, success of a remediation project, but it's not perfect. I mean, if it was perfect, you know, we could just, you know, um, it wouldn't be so complicated, these, these projects. And what Dustin will a lot of times do is, um, I'm assuming when he, his guys are all done with the project, one of the last things they'll do, kind of like to clean their footprints, if you will, is they'll have that HEPA vacuum again with the canister outside, and they will vacuum uh, these nearby areas, uh, these common areas there that are outside the containment, just as an above and beyond. I mean, I've seen Dustin do this a number of times that he just doesn't even charge his clients for. It's really just kind of like a, an extra move, that, uh, that cherry on the top there to minimize any onesie twosies, we call them, um, you know, mold fragments, mold structures that may have escaped, um, but that he could pick up and minimize it. So that's, that's really good practice and a good thing that I think all remediation companies can do so long as they're not making matters worse. You don't want them to have uh, a vacuum cleaner, a HEPA vacuum, a shop vac inside of this living room area outside the containment that's been used on a bunch of moldy jobs, hasn't been clean, but they tell you, hey, we'll vacuum out these areas for you because we listened to Mike and Dustin talk about it. They could make it worse. So it's all about being smart about, you know, if they're going to do that type of work, can they put the uh, vacuum cleaner outside? I've also seen Dustin just not even use a vacuum. Uh, if the flooring is uh, non-porous, if there's no carpeting, uh, he'll just wipe down those surfaces with the same Swiffer cloth, just again, an above and beyond uh, to minimize that cross-contamination concern. Um, so good point. Thank you, Dustin, for bringing that up on the PPE. Um, you know, it's complicated, guys, because... Um, what we're dealing with is different types of cleaning that is are sometimes happening at the same time where you're scrubbing the air or you're wiping the surfaces and because it's because particles behave differently um uh, call it particle behavior there's particles that are so small that they diffuse through the air like smoke there's other particles that are heavier they'll settle out relatively quickly but they can be kicked back up so that's why there's a holistic clean. That's why we're not just cleaning the air. That's why we're not just cleaning the surfaces. And that's why we're cleaning multiple times because things are being kicked up uh, and then they're settling out and you're removing some of them. And then it happens again, but then it's not quite as much. And you're getting it down to a, a point where it's as clean as you and or the remediation company think it can be. 
And then it's a matter of do, are you going to be doing post remediation verification? So to close out um, what we're talking about today, part three is, you know, taking that look at the remediation and environmental cleaning part four, what we're going to do, which is our final part of this four part series is the testing. Many of you who are on a mold remediation project will be working with a third party professional company to come in and do testing of this containment area inside, maybe outside, uh, to check for the efficacy of the work being done. And we're going to dive into that really deep on part four, because there's a lot of confusion between what is the true purpose of testing a containment? Is it to just see if there's any more mold throughout the home, or is it to test the efficacy of the work from the remediation company? Stay tuned for that on part four. Uh, should be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Dustin, I want to thank you again for coming online with me. I uh, look forward to speaking with you in a couple of weeks. We'll uh, get this thing buttoned up. Appreciate your time. Thanks as always, Mike. The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.